Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now you're very welcome back to the second hour of this special Down to Business, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and indeed New York City, for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year annual CEO retreat. In this hour, I'm going to be talking to the Secretary of State for Texas. I'll be chatting to one of the world's highest-rated CEOs, Mark McLean of SailPoint Technologies. Plus, I'll be heading up to New York City. So, I got to meet the Secretary of State for Texas when we visited the state's Capitol building. Now, I'm honoured to be here at the Texas Capitol in Austin uh, to meet uh, the Secretary of State uh, for the state of Texas, Mr. John Scott, and he joins me here in this magnificent building, John. Uh, I have to say, maybe you might describe uh, to our Irish listeners where we are here and what, and all, what, uh, what happens here. Well, we're in the state capital of Texas. It's in Austin, Texas, and once every two years is the location that 181 elected, publicly elected members come and, and pass laws for the yeah. state to govern it for the next two years. And there's a, there's a wonderful history to this building. It's, it was a courthouse. It was many things over, over the years. I know you're a lawman, so maybe just give us a, a potted history of, of the building. Well, so Texas was without money, and, but it had a lot of land. And so it made a deal with some folks. And it, uh, they traded land for the, the building. And they brought the stone in from around Marble Falls, which is an area, oh, about two hours away. They built okay. a rail line and they, they, they trucked it all down here. Uh, the building opened for business in 1888 Amazing. and it's been in business ever since. Now, what about the connection then with Ireland and uh, Texas? Uh, I think you mentioned a man called Hugh O'Connor, a Dublin man he, uh, who made who was of some service to the state. He was the governor of the great. Well, we were a state that was governed uh, part of the Spanish. We were a colony of Spain, and yeah. he was uh, selected to govern us uh, for those years. Yeah, a proud Dublin native. And we also had a connection, did we not, at the Alamo? Tell us about that. So there is a plaque at the Alamo, and it represents the, the 12 souls that, that were Irish that came and fought for our, our state at the time, our republic, to become a, a country and our successful fight. Wow, isn't that amazing? Well, Ireland has been a huge, huge part of the foundation of this country, of this state, the development of this state, and we have over a million people, almost two million people, with Irish ancestry that call Texas home and have been their home. Isn't that great? And you said uh, that you know many places that one can do business, but you don't know of a better place than Texas. Uh, why would an Irish business want to locate here? Well, <clears throat> Irish folks strike me as entrepreneur, salt of the earth, hardworking people that want to judge the results that they receive by the efforts that they put in. And that is the name of the game here in Texas. Yeah. Texas wants people really our past with Ireland and the people who've been here before, that's why we'll take any and all people from Ireland and we'll take your show over here because you know what? Everybody is great from that country. We love you. Well, John Scott, it's been a true pleasure to meet you here. Thank you for a warm welcome. Thank you. And we just love the connection between Texas and Ireland. So thank you for that. You are always welcome. Please come back. Top man. Now we're still here at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm delighted now to be joined by Professor John Doggett. He's a senior lecturer in the Department of Management, McComb School of Business uh, here at the University. Uh, John, you're very welcome to the program. It's good to be here. I like being on programs with bright people. Good. Well, we heard uh, your delivery earlier, John, 
Um, tell us a little bit what you do here at the university, first of all, for us. So I've been teaching at the university for a long time, and I teach MBA courses on entrepreneurship, global competition, and sustainability. And what makes my courses different is that I focus on practical things that real business people would have to learn how to do in, in class and, and push my students hard. So I have a reputation for being one of the better, but clearly one of the most demanding professors at the university. And you had your own journey around entrepreneurship, which I suppose gives you a credibility yeah. uh, now that uh, when you've got a room full of students because you've, you've kind of walked the talk in your earlier career. Well, as you know, the key issue is have you met a payroll? And the answer is I've done it more than once. And if you haven't met a payroll, you really don't understand what you're talking about. It's all theory and this is not just theory. Yeah. Okay. So when we talk then about uh, the entrepreneur and the journey of entrepreneurship, Maybe, and I, again, I might know a little bit about this because I, I, my own views have changed on this, but when we talk about success, like success in the early days might be making that first payroll, yeah. but success 20 years on might be some guy coming over the hill with a few hundred million dollars. So yeah. your, your definition of success changes as an entrepreneur and sometimes unconsciously. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's very interesting, and you talk to entrepreneurs and say, I'm doing well now, I'm making, we're profitable. I always ask them, I said, well, how much would you be making if you were paid the maximum salary that you were worth working for another company? And they give me a number, and I said, are your profits equal to that? And if the answer is no, then you're not profitable yet, because right? the opportunity cost is, is significant. So that's the first, and that typically kind of slaps them in the face, oh, I guess I have to make more money. But... When you first start a business, the issue is, can I survive? Will this business actually take off and be a functional, cash flow positive, then profitable business? And then one day you wake up and that's working. Then the next question is, how much do I want to grow? And depending on who your target is and who your funding source is, you might say, I don't want to grow it that much. I want to have just a nice life and have enough money coming in that I can have a nice life. We call that a lifestyle business. Or I want it to be so large I can go public. One of the challenges I deal with in working with students is that there is this mythology in the United States that the only thing you want to do is make a gazillion dollars. Yeah. Uh, and, but in fact, you can have a really nice life not making a gazillion dollars. And I'll give you a perfect example. A few years ago, I had a student, and she told me a story about her business, her family business. And her mother and father had built this business. They got irritated with each other. They got divorced, and the mother took the business over. And the daughter, who was my student, was going to go work for the business. Their total revenues were a little short of $4 million. So it's just in the context of a tax city, that's nothing. Their net profit after tax was one and a quarter million dollars. Yeah. And that didn't include salaries. That was just, you know, money left on the table. And so the question was, do we grow this business to make it larger? Or do we keep it because it was going to continue to flow cash like that for the foreseeable future because of the nature of the business? And we came to the conclusion that growing the business made no sense because if they grew it two or three times larger, they would draw attention to competitors who would make it impossible for them to yeah. have that margin. And so they all, the family made the decision, we're going to keep the business, quote, small, and we're going to take almost $2 million a year home which was the right decision. And venture capitalists and angel investors and all these other financiers said, oh, that's a stupid thing to do. But guess what? It's not stupid. Yeah. Tell me about, uh, you talked earlier about the whole kind of psychology around if it's not broken, break it. And I think you used a great example of the Sony 
of, of Sony, uh, that that's what they used to do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? In the old days of business in the last century, the idea was if it's not broke, broken, uh, stay with it. You know, there's nothing to do. Just keep doing the same old thing. We're now in a world where there's innovation is moving at such a fast pace that if you don't break what you're making, somebody else will. And so Sony was the first company that I was aware of, large company, to incorporate that idea. The Morita, who was their CEO, took them from obscurity to being famous, said, we have tiger teams. These are groups of men, because that's what Sony was at the time, whose sole purpose is that when we introduce a new product, their sole purpose is to figure out how to make that product obsolete. Yeah. And at the time, people said, oh, this is insane. Why would you do that? And his answer was, our competitors are going to try to do that. And so somebody's going to obsolete their product. And when they obsolete their product and come up with something better, they get the revenue. Why don't we keep that revenue ourselves? And so he created inside the company that concept. He eventually retired, and Sony walked away from that, which is why Sony is not what it used to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, you talk about success as well, being able to provide more value to the consumer than your competitors. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, the, the mistake a lot of business people make is they think their business is about themselves. It is never about themselves. It's only about their consumers or their customers. And one of the things we talked about this morning was nobody buys products or services. They buy solutions to problems that they have or tools to help them get something done. So if you're in the drill business and you make a two-inch drill bit, nobody's buying a two-inch drill bit. They're buying a two-inch hole. The whole is what's important to them. And so once you start thinking about life from your customer standpoint, the name of the game is how do you provide more value to the customer than your competitors? And value in this case is defined as benefits of your product versus cost of your product. And these are soft things, so a lot of business people don't like it. You can't measure them with numbers. It's just your customer is saying, this feels better. Well, guess what? If it feels better, that's all that counts. Finally then, John, you've seen a lot of change over your career you've seen you know you've seen the tech industry absolutely mushroom you've seen all these you know businesses come from nowhere yeah. to have billion dollar valuations can this is that sustainable the way with the route we're on now yeah you know it's <laughs> so i'm reminded of a quote this is one of the most famous quotes in innovation in this country the year is 1899, the day is the 31st of December, and the speaker is the head of the Copyright, Patent, and Trademark Office of the United States, December 31st, 1899, and he says, quote, everything that will be invented has been invented. Yeah. So the reality is there, the speed of innovation and invention is actually picking up. I've seen it over the decades. I was talking to my class on entrepreneurial growth just before I came here, and we were talking about Dropbox and Box and Google Drive and the other cloud storage products, and my assignment to them was, what could you do to eliminate them by coming up with something that's even better? And so we started that conversation. We are just seeing the beginning of absolutely crazy innovation. Think about Star Trek. If you ever saw the movie or the yeah. Star Trek, you know, they had these things in their hand that, you know, they could talk to people. And now yeah. we call them smartphones. But the other thing is they had a mainframe computer and they'd talk to the, the, the computer and it would tell them stuff. Well, we now have something called Alexa. Yeah. Uh, so we are nowhere close 
to being at a point where the speed of innovation is going to slow down. I expect the speed of innovation to, to multiply, actually. Because one of the things we're dealing with is the issue of climate change, which is something I teach about. And there are two approaches to climate change. One is, well, you can't have what you want, so we need to you know, do with less. The other approach is, well, guess what? The biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions is the People's Republic of China, and they're not going to back down. So we better figure out how to create technologies which allow everybody on the planet to have what they want, but also not harm the environment. And so there's a lot of innovation that's now going on that. In fact, I think one company just announced a new design for uh, wind turbines that increases energy produce, production by 66%. So innovation is here, here to stay. Here to stay. It's not going anywhere. All right, well, listen, uh, Professor John Douglas, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Management at the McComb School of Business, University of Texas at Austin. Thanks so much for joining My us. My pleasure. So good to have you here. Now, you're very welcome back to Down to Business, where I'm bringing you a very special show for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year annual CEO retreat from Austin, Texas, and also from New York City. And talking of New York, we got to visit the fabulous New York Stock Exchange. Have a listen to this. Now we're here in the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the Irish contingent are just about to come out and to ring the bell. So this is an amazing place. There's traders all over the floors. Everybody's here ready with their cameras. The bell is there. It's, it's right in the center. There's a big American flag over it. <clears throat> and there's a buzz in the room that is truly, truly amazing. So we've got 12 people now from the Entrepreneur of the Year group standing up on the stage. They're about to ring the bell, and this is a real honor. It's also been filmed live by CNBC. So it's going to go on, uh, and you've got the stock prices uh, on the ribbon going above the people that are going to ring the bell. So a lot of excitement here, and a lot of Irish voices in the New York Stock Exchange. So they've now come out onto the balcony, uh, the Irish representatives from the EY Entrepreneur of the Year. The bell is about to be rung. We're all here down on the floor looking up at them, waiting anxiously. This is a big moment for Ireland at the New York Stock Exchange. It's going to happen now very shortly. contingent have done us all proud. We've won the bell at the New York Stock Exchange.
Now we're here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It's been really, really exciting. I'm delighted now to welcome to the program Cassandra Sire. She's the head of international capital markets for the New York Stock Exchange Group. Cassandra, you're very welcome to Down to Business. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks now for you, having me. You might tell our listeners in Ireland what's actually happening here now. Today, well, it's very exciting. We were here since 7 in the morning welcoming 100 Irish founders and CEOs to the New York Stock Exchange. We started out with breakfast and opening remarks and learned a little bit about the growth journey of how to become public. And then we just uh, had uh, 14 people uh, up on the podium of the New York Stock Exchange ringing the opening bell at 9.30. Um, and the bell ringer um, and ENY Ireland really uh, came together and the spirit was high. Yeah. Um, that was probably one of the loudest opening bells <laughs> I have experienced. And the Irish get to sing as well. That's yes, the bonus. Yes, we, get we to got sing that too. on video and it was very one of the more exciting bells I've seen. Um, so nice job everyone. So the significance of the ringing of the bell, it's, it's a huge day for companies that go public. There's a lot of you know, media around it, a lot yes. of pressure, a lot of buzz, a lot of razzmatazz. And then you've got all this trading going on in the background. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the traders here now. So what are they going to be doing now well, that the bell has been rung? Sure. So as you said earlier, 9.30 is the opening bell. And uh, it really signifies the opening of the U.S. equity market. The screen went from gray to now you see red and green. Okay. So the change of color to signify the opening of capitalism, which is really exciting. The traders are now extremely busy. They're trying to make sure that they're injecting liquidity. They are making their own uh, you know, trading, hedging, yeah. uh, and CNBC which we're standing right here is one of the 30 plus media outlets on the trading floor. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, and this is just what happens throughout the day. Yeah. Now, at the end of the day, we signify a closing of the U.S. equity market by ringing the closing bell. Okay. And that happens at 4 p.m. Monday to Friday. Well, listen, I can tell you this, Cassandra, we're honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely welcome. Of course. We've had such a great morning Come here. Come back soon, okay? Okay. All right, thank you. Cassandra Sire, ladies and gentlemen, from the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks for joining Thanks, us on Down to Business. Yes, that was me at the New York Stock Exchange, a place I thought I'd never see. Now, let's hear some more from the finalists of this year's competition. Now, we continue our discussions here at the EY Entrepreneur of the Year competition in Austin, Texas, and I'm delighted to be joined uh, by three of the finalists um, who are going to tell us a little bit about their business first, but we're also going to dis discuss the importance of hiring and keeping the right people as you scale internationally. And I'm delighted to be joined by Evelyn Kelly from Orphan Drug. Uh, um, again, congratulations on being a finalist. Uh, Gregory Bradley from Black Box and uh, Lulu O'Sullivan, giftsdirect.com and theirishstore.com. You're also very welcome to the program. And we might start with you, Lulu. Yeah. Um, Again, somebody who, who knows this space well. Firstly, tell us a little bit about your business. Yeah, so we have two brands. One is Gifts Direct, and it delivers gifts all over the world, hampers wines for both uh, consumers and corporates uh, in Ireland. Um, and then we have a second brand called The Irish Store, and it's targeted at the Irish diaspora around the world, and particularly here in the US, actually, where, where we do a lot of our business. Okay. Yeah. Um, Evelyn, Orphan Drug, again, very interesting business, and I know you operate in a lot of different markets, so you might tell our listeners all about your wonderful business. 
Absolutely, thanks Bobby. So Orphan Drug Consulting supports supply of medicines that treat rare diseases globally. We've supported products in over 100 countries all over the world, ensuring patients get access to the medicines that they need. We look after the supply chain and the compliance, the quality assurance aspects of that delivery. Okay, very interesting. And then uh, Gr Gregory Bradley from Black Box. Greg, uh, you have a very interesting business. Yeah, thanks Bobby. Yeah, so Black Box, we design, manufacture and supply strength conditioning equipment or in layman's terms, gym equipment. Um, probably three key sectors we work in would be direct-to-consumer, um, via e-commerce for home gyms, um, but also we work in the fitness sector for... Uh, independent gyms, CrossFit boxes, hotels, leisure centres, um, Pure Gym would probably be our, our biggest client there. And then uh, performance is sort of the, the third space we work in, which would be uh, anything from elite sports teams, Man United, Arsenal, um, or corporate wellness for Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, um, and then amateur sports teams and military. So, yeah, we work in a, a lot of different sectors, and it's uh, yeah, fascinating and really rewarding industry to be in. And, and just, I'm curious when you talk about Manchester United and Nike there. Yep. So, just again, just to dive into that for a second, what type of products would they be buying from you? Yeah, so uh, we specialise in M10 gym design, so we would go in with Man United, we yeah, refurbished uh, the Carrington training ground, um, so we'd take care of everything from flooring to equipment, okay. uh, similar next headquarters in uh, London as well, so um, that's our, our main speciality, it's not just about supplying products, we talk about we want to sell insights as opposed to just items, um, and yeah, so the ex education is an important part too. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Back to you, Lulu, and again, with the theirishstore.com, you know, I know that was, but you had another business, and then you decided to embark on this new market, this new uh, diaspora here in the US. How did you go about doing that? So actually it came out of doing the Alfred G course, the Leadership for Go course in Stanford, uh, which Enterprise Ireland sponsor. And it was an amazing course because it really made me step back and gave me the time to really think about where would be the right place to go and, you know, and where is there a big enough market, you know. And so, so that was really it. So as part of the kind of doing that course, I really kind of researched it and obviously was in Stanford. So we were back and forth here and made some connections. And, and then really I learned as well from the, from the guys in the class that, you know, when you're online, you don't particularly need feet on the ground, you know, because you're doing all your acquisitions really from online so so really the main thing is that you really have the right people in dublin to basically do to to grow the business abroad interesting you say that and i think maybe online has maybe changed things in that area because in certainly in the old days you talked about boots on the ground yeah. and you know how the people wouldn't know the culture of yeah. the people and exactly. but you're dealing with irish people primarily or or people who have an irish connect irish connect exactly yeah so yeah, yeah yeah and there was one of the <clears throat> classmates who had built up hostel world to a couple of hundred million and he never had feet on the ground yeah. you know so it was a real like learning for me okay if i get the online uh, online acquisition right i can do it anywhere you know so yeah I think we know who he is as well. We but, uh, <laughs> now, um, Evelyn Kelly from Orphan Drug Consulting then. Tell us a little bit about your overseas work um, and again, going into new markets and how you, um, I suppose, how you resource them and how do you staff them? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Bobby. So 
the nature of rare diseases is that they're genetic and very much genetic in, in, in and that the, the, you end up going to pockets of the world that you wouldn't expect to go to. Okay. So when I worked in Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, we had to supply product to the Martinique Islands, which is part of the French territory. So they were entitled to receive product under the French reimbursement scheme. But to get those products to uh, the Martiniques, that was quite a challenge. So, you know, this is where it's really, this is where Orphan Drug Consulting really supports our clients in understanding what they have to do to get the products um, to their patients and also what we do then in these markets is we provide the people on the ground for these markets. And tell us how that works. Yeah so we have employees, we have consultants so uh, they've come from both a network and trusted recruitment partners and we, we make a decision about where to next locate. We have four offices globally and um, our recent one has just opened in Australia and we have a fantastic lady that came on board three months ago with us there. And then they will support the market to grow. So I think the first person you get on the market is really key. Yeah. And to make sure, I mean, you know, our business is, my business is consulting. Our business is services to the pharmaceutical companies that want to get these medicines to their patients. So you have to really understand the nature of people, the nature of the government players, the regulatory agencies that you're working with, and then have the right people to support that and, and work across the different cultures. Yeah, yeah very important. Um, back to you, Gregory. Um, when you talk about going into new markets, you mentioned uh, overseas. How did you tool up for that? Yeah, we've made a probably three million pound investment in uh, the past sort of eighteen to twenty four months. Um, we've a hundred and thirty thousand square foot headquarters just outside Belfast. Um, spent a lot in new machinery, robotic welding. Um, but for us, it's yeah, you, you need key people, and I think for us, we're probably quite lucky and that it is a very challenging labour market but it is a an exciting industry to be in so people probably want to come and work at black box um but yeah we've just we spent quite a bit in our own sort of employer branding um, to ensure that people can get an insight of what it is like um, to work at Black Box. Um, if, if, you, if you look then at, I suppose, uh, recruiting people overseas, so you've obviously got really good infra infrastructure in Belfast, uh, but, you know, and there's, as you say, precision welding and robotics. And so in terms of developing business then, like sales, who, who does the sales? How do you develop sales in new overseas markets? Yeah, uh, we have some distributors in uh, Middle East. We're about to introduce new distributors in uh, Denmark, uh, Switzerland and, and other regions. So it's a blend of through distribution partners, but also then we will have direct salespeople that would be based there. Um, we have two members of staff based in uh, China as well, um, wow. which we are able to just recruit online and yeah, basically just chat via WeChat mostly. Um, so yeah, everything is predominantly done online. And, and for you, as you've been in this business over the years, Greg, has the world become a smaller place in the sense that with with the communications that we have now at our disposal, if you can, you know, uh, Snapchat the guy in China, you know, to get something done or to to sort out a problem or whatever it is. Is it uh, communicating, you know, so far? Is it is it a challenge? 
Uh, oh, it is. I think every business talks about communication is a huge issue, and um, I think you just do need to over communicate as much as possible and repeat yourself. And yeah, I learned a, a great um, expression a couple of years ago in the negativity of, of or in the absence of communication, negativity will fill it. And yeah. so, if you're not communicating with your team, they're just going to maybe make some things up. But to your original question, Bobby, I think yes, we are more connected with social media and different platforms etc but i personally don't think there's anything better than you know face-to-face -face communication yeah. um you know if you're onboarding staff etc people can learn the culture of the business very easily doing it digitally i don't believe that's the right thing i think you need to be immersed in it yeah. and um yeah we talk about which we borrowed from netflix being a, a sports team as opposed to a, our culture is not a family culture and that's not for everyone uh, because you know what it's like yeah i think you have to be um but you know what it's like if you have an annoying family member you can't really get rid of them or uh, put them on a pit so um yeah. that, that's our no, culture well said. yeah lula going back to developing the business now and scaling it up maybe to the next level yeah. in the u.s yeah. what are your thoughts around that how can you drive it on and get the growth that you need to yeah. to be getting every year yeah yeah there's still loads of growth left in in the u.s well, so 300 we're million to, people yeah, here. exactly yeah. and, and whatever 20 something million that claim to be irish or whatever yeah. so it's fantastic or whatever so uh so we basically yeah so we're, we're now we went into australia last year uk and uk has a huge amount of people uh, who claim Irish, obviously, but also who are interested in our in our products. So that's really good. Um, and uh, and Australia, it ended up like I thought, because mostly, particularly with the Irish store, a lot of iron jumpers. You know, so I thought they'll never sell in Australia. We're like huge success. It's like it's great. And is there a different? Do you have to tweak the product offering for different Irish in different communities? It, yeah, so that, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, no? it is interesting. You say mm -hmm. definitely the more traditional stuff would sell better in the US. Yeah. And then the kind of the whether it's you know modern Irish jewellery with a bit of a twist, but it's definitely Irish, or whether it's a you know an iron jumper that looks more modern would sell better in Australia and the UK or whatever. So would really have to be watching what product is right for which market. market. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe back to you, Evelyn, in terms of the next phase of your business overseas. Can you walk us through what your thoughts are and where you see development going over the next couple of years? So the, the growth of um, Orphan Drug Consulting, part of our growth strategy is to open more global locations so we can support our um, the pharmaceuticals we work with globally. So we're hoping to open an office in Switzerland and looking at opening more offices in the US. Um, I'm in the process of hiring our first employee in the US um, at the moment and we have somebody that's moving over to Boston right. as well to support the development. And that was really key to make sure that the culture of orphan drug consulting was very much embedded into our Boston office in more detail. And that's the reason why we're investing on sending David over there in October, as well as the key hire. So hire of our leadership, it's a head of business development will be on our leadership team. And we want to put more locations in the US then. But interestingly that we're talking about culture and the different pieces. When, we look at, when I look at other parts of the world, we'd probably end up going for more partnership models um, because of that culture, because of the difficulty yeah. of developing. So places like China and Brazil, looking at partnership models there. Uh, last word to you, Greg. We're in a, in a, a, like a real, I suppose, era where wellness, fitness, 
uh, is, is continues to be a growing space. Where do you see the next opportunities for your business overseas? Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, the, the industry is growing and it's, it's great. Um, I think, yeah, COVID, obviously, I think one of the good things from it has made people realise the importance of their own health. And um, there's research that's came out, people from maybe a more affluent background exercise more, but unfortunately people from maybe, uh, yeah, unprivileged background maybe um didn't exercise more so we're trying to um, partner with a charity to help people from these communities we've just won a global contract with Pure Gym uh, they've currently got 500 gyms across UK uh, Europe Middle East and America and they want to more than double that over the next three wow. to five years so um, we're going to be busy uh, delivering that contract but obviously we take out some of their old equipment and we want to repurpose that equipment maybe donate it to people from a um yeah per background countries or yeah yeah places where where the market has yet to be established yeah yeah all right well look it's been a fascinating discussion uh, you're all all three of you are in very different businesses but i can see the connect in terms of uh, you know marketing and delivering your business overseas so thanks for joining us and i hope you've all enjoyed your trip to austin texas now our time here in Austin and New York as part of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year annual CEO retreat is nearing an end. But we have been the guest of EY and I'm delighted now to have a chat with an old friend of mine, an old friend of the shows, Frank O'Keefe, our host here, uh, the managing partner for EY Ireland. Frank, uh, what a few days it's been. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. And it just shows you how hard you've been working. You sound really hoarse, you know, with all the interviews you've been doing. But That's one of my trademarks. <laughs> what, an, what an incredible week. Yeah. What an incredible week for entrepreneurship on the island of Ireland. Effectively, we've had nearly 120 travelling with our group this week. The majority of them being the best of Ireland's entrepreneurs. The whole value of the week is really around a number of things. It's around in, you know, spending time with other brilliant leaders from around the world, sharing their experiences, their opportunities, the way they've grown their businesses, the pitfalls that they've had. Yeah. It's also been about executive education, really sharing with our entrepreneurs things that really matter as you build and grow your markets, your team, but also your operations and your business. But the magic, Bobby, as you and I know, is all about the community, the alumni. What's really terrific is 24 amazing finalists for 2022, 70 plus alumni who've been in our program for many years, fusing relationships, sharing experiences with each other, thinking about opportunities together, explaining ways they can venture yeah. together. And the whole beauty of it, Bobby, is as we know over the years, which is all down to the entrepreneurs, they venture together. And what do they do? They create jobs in Ireland and they create jobs around the world. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's, a, it's, as you say, we've been doing this, or you've been doing this a long time. I've been lucky enough to be on along the last 10 years. And each year we get the same vibe, the same energy, the same interactions and the same friendships. I think that's a, also an important part of it. You know, speaking about entrepreneurship, you know, your own company, EY, you know, there's some changes happening there. You know, what maybe might be coming down the tracks in terms of maybe a new way of, of doing, you know, your business in your sector. Yeah, look, it's well publicised. I mean, there's been a lot of press written over the last period of time around what we in EY are considering. So what we've recently announced is that, you know, we've been thinking about our business and how we really serve our clients and the markets in Ireland and around the world. 
And it's really important for us to think through our strategy and what makes sense for our clients and also for our people. So at the moment, we're considering, we're moving from a feasibility stage now and more into a diligence stage, considering splitting our business in EY into two parts. The first part I'll talk about really is our consulting business. So as you can imagine, the world is changing significantly. Our clients really want us to go with them and solve and help them solve their biggest strategic challenges. Digitalization, artificial intelligence, depth in consulting, corporate finance and also tax. So we see a real opportunity to expand out our market because our clients want us to serve them from a strategic perspective where we can't at the moment on the audit side. Okay. And you think about alliances that we have or that we'd like to have with some of our largest audit clients gives us the opportunity to really help our clients in a different way. And on the assurance side, what we really believe is that um, we have an opportunity to truly focus on being the absolute best assurance practice in the, island, in the island of Ireland and also around the world. It also opens up choice for clients where they would like us to be on the audit side, but also on the non-audit side. Yeah. So we think actually we and EY have the opportunity to change the face of professional services around the world, but we will only do this if it makes absolute sense for our clients how we can invest in our clients, invest in our people, do it for our people, and really make sense to kind of grow people's careers while we also serve our clients in a different way. So we're really excited about it. We're in the diligence stage. Our partners in Ireland will decide if this is what they want to do, as will partners in other countries. But I think it's really exciting. It's really exciting for our people in EY, for the talent to join us, to come into our firm, to really you know, expand and, and accelerate their careers, okay. get to work with wider sets of clients and have really the best experience as we deliver excellence in the marketplace. Okay, well, every success with that. And again, just on behalf of News Talk, thanks for having us here. It's been a pleasure to be, uh, have been associated with the programme for so long. We've had a wonderful, wonderful few days. And my last question is to you, where are we going next year? <laughs> well, Bobby, if you, I'm surprised I get the last word, right? But I do want to say to you, to your team and to News Talk, uh, we're so proud of our association. We really, really value as a, a true partner. Wherever we go next year, when we announce it, I do know and I do hope that you'll be here with us. But Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Frank. Now, a very special executive chair for you this week from our trip to Austin and New York. Have a listen to this. News Talk's executive chair. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. Now, I'm truly honoured to be joined by Mark McLean. He's the CEO and founder of SailPoint Technologies. Uh, Mark, you're very welcome to Down to Business. Uh, I've, I've read a lot about you, and I'm really looking forward to chatting to you. Well, thank you, Bobby. It's an honour to be on the podcast. As I was joking with some of the folks at our conference today, my last name is McLean. Let's just say assume I'm Irish for the moment. I'm, I'm part of this tribe. You're one of us. I'm one it's of going you. to be a great interview. Now, give us a little brief history of yourself. I know you were formerly an IBM man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sun Microsystems did a, you did a, you did, you you built a business, sold it, but you've done so much more. Yeah, no, I, I've been in technology my whole life. Most folks are certainly familiar with names like IBM and Hewlett Packard. First ten years of my career, I was in these big companies, kind of sales and marketing jobs, more uh, on the market outbound side than say engineering development. Sure. Right. So I was kind of 
out facing customers and working. And I was enjoying that, but I figured out about that 10th year, like I'm not sure I'm the corporate guy that wants to just climb that ladder and the old proverbial find out it's leaning against the wrong wall. That's the joke, right? So um, about that 10th year, I had a chance to come to an early stage company here in Austin, Texas. I was in California kind of the center of tech out there. But I decided to come here to Austin, which at the time was not much of a known city and certainly not a tech city. Right. And kind of a, my wife and I, little kids at that point said, let's give it a shot and come out here and see what happens. Found myself working for an interesting kind of young tech company that was growing. Ironically, it got bought a year later by IBM. So I found myself back at IBM. But in that period, I learned I really enjoyed kind of that early stage business. So a group of us left and started a company in 2000. As you pointed out, that ran for a few years and sold to Sun Microsystems. Started this company, I'm still running SailPoint, thinking we'd run for a few years. And here I am 17 years later, it's been quite a journey. And one of the things you talked about earlier was, you know, starting off as a VC with family, calling yeah. it family, mm-hmm. moving to private equity, mm-hmm. moving, calling it team. So, like, when there's equity out there, when there's mm-hmm. finance available, you've, you've gone uh, venture capital, private equity, went public, back private, go private again. <laughs> like, all those kind of financial things did you find them a distraction to the business you were in? Oh, in other words, mm. marrying your business and growing your business with just keeping the numbers right. Yeah, it's such a good question. I know you probably built a business, Bobby, without a lot of outside capital. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. With your business. Yeah. And I think here's what's true if we're running a business, any of us, right? At the end of the day, you have to think about where's the money coming from to build the business. If you, quote, bootstrap it, I don't know if that's the term yeah, you yeah. use, I assume it is, right? Like Then you have to early on get some revenue in, or maybe you take a little what we call family and friends money to get started, right? But you're always thinking about where's the dollars revenue, you know, coming, pounds, uh, euros, euros. Yeah. <laughs> coming to, to move the business. And in our case, the, we knew the kind of businesses we were going to build required some upfront capital so we could spend some time developing a pretty sophisticated product before we took it to the market. Yeah. We really didn't have a choice. We couldn't bootstrap it. There was no way. Um, so that was our model. But then to your point, we moved through multiple financial models and, and you asked as it's distracting. What I learned is there's a small number of people in the business who have to kind of pay attention to whatever kind of investors you have. The CEO, the CFO, maybe a few others. But the, but the great majority of most teams, the ones that are building products or selling and marketing products or taking you care of customers. You protect them from the board. Yeah, they're, they're just like, let me do my job and you worry about that board stuff. And that's, so that was my role. Sounds like yours too, right? So it, it can be distracting, but, it, but if you just accept it, that sometimes outside or accelerating capital is is helpful to where your business wants to go and you manage that and let the team focus on customers and products and how does how to keep people happy that seems to work yeah so so you were saying then out of that is one lesson for entrepreneurs is to stay flexible so you can you know and going back to that whatever way you're financed you know something might suit you one day but something else might suit you you know, in two years' time. Again, a, a term you used, cash burns a hole in your brain, which I loved. <laughs> the idea of cash burning a hole in your brain, yeah, I think the original phrase is cash burns a hole in your pocket, right? But his point was, so often in, in 
early stage companies, people are like, I need to go raise a lot of money to have a cushion. And there's some truth in that. You need some margin to build a business. If you're building what bootstrap, you take some retained earnings or profits off the table to give you a cushion as you grow, right? You don't want to run right up against the margin and if something unexpected happens, you're dead, right? None of us operate that way. Well, his point was so often in technology companies, people kind of raise as much money as they can thinking more cash is better. This kind of, the simple metaphor for me on this is to come back to personal, right? There's all kinds of evidence now that if you happen to be successful and have earned some wealth, if you give a 18 year old a lot of money, it will not go well, right? right. Like they're not ready to handle that kind of spending. <laughs> and it's kind of true of a young entrepreneur, like here's yeah. millions of dollars, you have five people in your company. The likelihood they Get will spend that. Yeah, yeah, now we need fancy offices and really nice wine in the refrigerator or whatever, right? Like. The cash burns a hole in your brain is too much cash gets your mind off of the kind of scarcity and mindset. And money gets spent badly. It just gets spent badly. Yeah. And then the rainy day does come later and you're like, where'd all that cash go? Well, you spent it on stupid stuff because <laughs> you burnt a hole in your brain. So that was super helpful my metaphor for us because we kept saying, we don't need to spend that yeah. money on that thing. Now we need to spend it on product development. And my co-founder and I, until the company had hundreds and hundreds of people shared an office that was about 10 by 12 feet. Yep. So when people would come into the company, they got a very clear picture about frugality from the top guys. <laughs> like, oh, you think you need a fancy corner office? Have you seen where Mark and Kevin sit? They share an office where their chairs bump into Lead each other. Lead by example. Lead by example. And that sent such a powerful message. Like, those guys share an office. Wow. And it didn't have windows for a while. We were in an interior office. Anyways. wanted story. to talk to you about people because, yeah. I, again, you know, you, you, you really were clear about just the importance of how First of all, how you select people, mm. how you keep people, how you make sure that people are always relevant and stay relevant within the business. Mm -hmm. And you talked about this ideal team player, mm -hmm. which is somebody who's humble, somebody who's hungry, and somebody who's smart. Can you just walk us through that for a second? I certainly will. And again, I very much need to give credit here. This is These thoughts come from an author named Patrick Lencioni. Yeah. He wrote the book, Ideal Team Player. But we've absolutely adopted it inside SailPoint, our company. This idea is that the kinds of people we all want to work with, whether they are our colleagues, uh, our manager, or if we're a manager, our subordinates, they hit these three criteria because the right kind of people are not prima donnas is a term, right? Or, or, or arrogant jerks is one of the other terms that Patrick uses in the book. This idea that the right kind of people are really competent and capable, but they're not arrogant. Yeah. I, I referenced the C.S. Lewis quote that, that not, not a lot of folks have heard, frankly, but it says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself than you should. It's just thinking of yourself less. Yeah. Humble people, they don't degrade their competence and skills. They're aware of their skills, but they just don't feel a need to tell everyone how great they are, and they want to focus on delivering great results for the team. Hum, that's humble. Hungry just says they want to get better. Like the right kind of people in your business, they never get complacent and go, I've got this figured out. I don't need to get any better. I don't need to improve. I've got this completely figured out. And like, no, that's just not true in almost any business. You're always learning, adapting, getting better. And then smart is both IQ, like a level of intelligence, right, to be able to perform the job. But this, this more recent concept of emotional intelligence, how do I make sure these people know how to kind of, I, I always make it a, a kindergarten reference, like plays well with others, right? Like how do they get along with the five-year-old? This kid can play with all kinds of other kids. I want that kid in my team, <laughs> you know? This kid doesn't get along with kids. I don't want that kid on my team. And I suppose just then really to summarize, if we talk about people mm. and how they fit in organizations, do you think 
that's changed a lot. Do you think, if you look back over your career, the type of people you worked with and the people who delivered, maybe the people who didn't, is there just new versions of all that? I think most of these are pretty consistent. I'm not sure we thought about them enough in business 40 years ago when yeah. I got started, but but I think they're still generally true. I'm sure in Ireland you've been talking the same as us about the great resignation and all these people that came out of the pandemic thinking, I'm going to change jobs. I hate that term. I, it really bothers me well, that, that somebody would have an attitude that is, I'm, not gonna do, I'm only going to do so much. Right, and I think when it's a, I don't want to work that hard and I'm going to quit, fine. I think some of that, and I'm, I'm with you, there's, there's great rethinking. I've heard a bunch of great re-something, whatever. But the thought about, I think that is sobering for us as leaders is, if you had people come out of the pandemic and want to leave your company because they decided you weren't treating them well, that yeah. you didn't, they didn't value your culture and you didn't appear to value them, that's a wake-up call for businesses, yeah, right? But, but to your point, has that changed? No, I don't know that it's really changed in how we think about people and how we manage people. But I think now in the world, there is so much flexibility and the working from anywhere. And I have the ability to work kind of when I want, where I want at some level in some kinds of jobs, for sure. Then people are going to be more selective about not only is this a great job or a great business opportunity, are they serving a great market? But how are the people treating me? Is this the kind of place I feel valued and appreciated? And I think that has risen in this generation. They have higher expectations on both the opportunity for business success, but also I want to feel good at the end of the day of how my team thinks about me and how I'm viewed on the team. And I think people are going to be tougher about staying in jobs where they're treated badly. Thanks so much for letting us into your world. It, it's an You're honor. absolutely an inspiration. I love, I love the freshness of your thought oh. and just your open-mindedness is truly refreshing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. It's such an honor to be with all of you and right. wish you all the best. Mark McLean, he's an honorary Irish man <laughs> and he's the CEO and founder of SailPoint Technologies. That was Mark McLean there of SailPoint Technologies there in our executive chair this week, all the way from Austin, Texas and indeed New York City. That's all we got time for this week. Can I say a huge thanks to everybody at EY uh, who have been here with us at the annual CEO retreat. I want to thank Katie Donnelly, uh, Emer Rigney, Emer McCran, and Roger Wallace. Also want to thank my travelling companion and producer, Jessica Kelly, who did a wonderful job. Also thanks to series producer John Fardy back at base. Simon Keane was also helping us. Stephen McLoon was on sound. So it's goodbye from Austin, goodbye from New York, and I'll talk to you from Dublin next week. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.